Hello and welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast for Monday, May 15th. I'm Dane Cash and we are coming to you after the ninth stage of the Giro d'Italia and the third and final stage of the Itzulia Women. It's been a very busy Sunday for bike racing news. Uh, as I just said, Itzulia Women ended, and the Giro d'Italia going into its first rest day, was all, there was already some exciting racing today, plenty of things to talk about, uh, and yet it's a darn good thing we didn't record this podcast one hour ago, because as we are sitting down to record, the news came down from Twitter that Remco Evenepoel is out of the Giro d'Italia after testing positive for COVID-19. So that just turns the race on its head. So lots to talk about here ahead of the second week of racing at the Giro and after the Itzulia women joining me to discuss the bike racing in a pretty serious fashion this week, as ever, is bike racing analyst extraordinaire, Cosmo Catalano. Cosmo, how are you? I am well. I do not have COVID-19. I've I've also finished all my my non-TUE meds from last week. So, well, that's good to hear. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Um, also joining us this week, Abby Mickey, former pro, current host of the Wheel Talk podcast. Abby, it's great to see you. It's great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, uh, we've got so much to discuss. We've got so much racing that has happened, and so much racing news that will affect racing that's coming up. Uh, the Giro, just full of news storylines. But the Itzulia women, I think we can cover that relatively quickly, actually. So let's hit that one first. It was a dominant performance for SD Works. It was a dominant performance for the rider who didn't actually win the race. Also a dominant performance from the rider who did win the race. Uh, what are we talking about here? Cosmo, what happened at the Itzulia women? We had a three-day stage race. We got coverage every day. Not all that much of it, but enough, I think, to kind of tell what was going on. Uh, Damien Vollering got clear oh, on the first day over the top of the last climb and came down, won by the stage by a bunch, and then Marlon Royser came in second behind her. Uh, you may have heard of them finishing one, two, and a few podiums before. Next day, uh, there's kind of a smaller group sprint. Um, again, Damien Vollering wins it. Royser is third. Third day, uh, we had a very aggressive ride from S Day Works, despite the fact that they seemed, I mean, they're winning the race. They could have just defended the jersey. Um, ended up with a group of five together, uh, about 20K out. And then Royser basically went clear of that group solo with uh, Vollering marking things behind. Apparently, the strategy everyone else settled on was make Vollering not win the race. And Vollering was like, cool, that's my teammate up the road. So Royster took the stage and the overall uh, Vollering in second. Um, yeah, pretty dominant performance from someone who did not win the GC. And that's now basically the second week in a row that's happened for Demi Vollering because she was, I, I think, the best rider at La Vuelta Femenina as well. Didn't actually win. Uh, and here we are again, still racing in Spain, this time in the Basque Country. And she went into today's stage, Sunday's stage, with a pretty strong record. Of racing at the Itzulia Women. Uh, this this is of course only the second year that this race has existed, and in last year's race, she won uh, every stage and the overall, 
And at this year's race, she looked like she was on track to do that. And then instead, on the final day, as you said, Cosmo, Marlon Rooster took the win. So I don't know how much else we can say about SD Works being really good. That's a known commodity. But I think there's a, some interesting dynamics at play here beyond just Demi Voldering being good. Marlon Rooster is, I think, as much a story for them this season as Demi Vollering's dominance. Marlon Rooster really coming into her own and and just shining when given the opportunity over and over again. She won Gabriel in March. She was on the podium at Liège. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing about Marlon Rooster this season is that in seasons past, she's been a really strong time trialist. And this season, she went into the season, she was like, okay, I want to remove myself from this, the confines of being a time trialist and a time trialist only. And she's become an absolute asset to this team that is missing a few of its top riders with Chantel Vandenbroek Black out. Uh, she's she's going to have a baby. And for for the team, they really needed someone with the strength to pick up that slack. And Marlon has really stepped into that role. And I feel like one of the most interesting things about the overall general classification at the end of this race for me is that Demi Vollering could have won this race easily. She is probably still a little bit frustrated um with how the Vuelta FM, the Vuelta Femenina went down last week and she could have walked away with a stage race overall win a world tour overall win today uh or Sunday and she was more than happy to give that to Marlon and they they said after the race Marlon Rusa said after the race in her post race interview that when they talked about how they wanted to race the day, that they could have just defended the lead. I mean, at that point, Demi was winning by a good margin, and it would have taken a pretty serious move from someone else to take that jersey from her. But they decided they wanted to be aggressive on the day, and Marlon Rusa asked Demi if it ended up that she won the overall, would that be okay? And Demi was like, yeah. So I think that's really interesting going into the rest of the season where Marlon Rusa is going to be working a lot for Demi. I think like that kind of friendship makes somebody sacrifice just a little bit more for their teammate and going into the Tour de France Femme of X Swift, that's going to be a huge asset to Demi that, and Marlon will never forget this, that Demi could have won this race. And even like Marlon said at the end of the race that Demi's the strongest in the Peloton. And she still was more than happy to give over this this GC win, Marlon Russo's first World Tour GC win um, on this stage. And it's not like nobody fought them for it. Uh, there was a couple really impressive rides on the day. Like Olivia Barrel of UAE Team ADQ just kind of keeps getting better and better and better. And especially in a race like this, it was really she this was kind of her breakout performance last year at Azulia. So it was really cool to see her back up there. Um, and like Kashini Wadoma has been having a slower start to the season, but she finished third overall and she had some really great moves and tried some things. So I think for her also, she's coming better and better as we kind of approach the tour. And the one rider who looked not great was still Annemiek Van Vluten. And even though she won the Vuelta last weekend, she's not looked like as dominant as Anamique we know in years past and in this race she looked even more tired than we've seen her in the spring so that was really interesting to see I mean if if you even just look at stage two where it was kind of a small bunch sprint to the line 
Her and Leanna Lippert were gapped by one second, which that doesn't seem like that much, but when you're when you're already on the back foot, that like those tiny gaps, like they just they mean so much. So it's really interesting to watch the dynamic of the whole Peloton. But a lot of these top riders right now going into bigger races to come. I think the Marlon Russer Demi Vollering situation reminds me of a conversation we had on placeholders uh, around the time of uh, Vlad Van Aert and Christophe Laporte uh, working together at, at the Classics where it was clear that Van Aert was flying and yet it really behooved him to let a guy like Christophe Laporte have his day. Uh, and what I said at the time, I st- I'll still say it now, is... This is this is feudalism, you know, working perfectly. And uh, Demi Vollering in this analogy uh, is is the queen, and she's been flying, as we all know. But you got to keep your vassals happy, and you can do that by letting them win the Atsulia women sometimes. Uh, so Marlon Rooster did a heck of a job to go out, take the win for herself. Given the opportunity, she went out and did it, and that's awesome. And now, yeah, as you pointed out, come uh, the tour, come really any, any other race of the future, I think. Demi Vollering can can now you know talk to Marlon and say hey remember that time that uh, I was leading the race and I said hey go win the race instead and that's a really valuable thing that's a really great way to uh, build a good relationship with your teammates. It can also bite you in the butt because it totally depends on the personality of your teammate because your teammate also might you know have have that victory go to their head. They might start getting a little bit cocky. They might start wanting a little bit more. And then you get situations like, I don't know, Wiggins and Froome at the tour, you know, it starts to get a little bit tricky. And I feel like that happens a lot less in women's cycling, but it's still always a risk. But these two riders are such good friends. Like they, they were at altitude together before these races, they've been spending a lot of time together. So I feel like in this scenario, that's probably not something that should worry Demi, but it can, that can happen. That is a thing. Yeah. I I would just like to point out that the, the situation that you described or the potential pitfalls, are just further evidence that this is a good uh, analogy for feudalism. Because uh, <laughs> if Marlon Rooster were to indeed get too much power, she could be a rebellious vassal, and then you would have the Hundred Years' War. That's exactly what happened. So this is, uh, you're, you're, you're building the case, and I appreciate that. I'm glad to have you on my side. So, the, so wait, you're so such is, a nerd. Like... Which, one, which one is England and which one is France in your Hundred Years' War analogy here? In this analogy, Marlon Rooster would be England, who was uh, the king of, who, okay. of which was technically a vassal yeah. of France uh, okay. in certain parts of France. Yes. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna make actually a fairly similar comment. Uh, I was gonna say that Laporte has been around the block and on other teams, and he's had some success, but nowhere near what he's doing at Yumbo. And so, I, I really feel like it's in his best interest to stay that sort of successful vassal. Whereas, I feel like Royster is almost still kind of figuring out what she can do. Like she's someone who really came to professional cycling later, like with obviously a ton of talent. And we've seen her in, in strong support roles. She had some great rides. She had the the, the win at the Roubaix stage at, at uh, uh, Femovex Zwift last year. But the way she's been climbing this year, the way she's been performing in the mountains, it's not like she's throwing down with Van, Van Vluten, but she's got like, you know, she can diesel up these climbs and do stuff afterwards. And you know, I feel like if I'm her, I'm kind of wondering, well, you know, how how good can I be now? How much 
if I get as good as I can be, am I is Demi still the strongest rider in in the peloton? And I think there is a lot more. Uh, all, the the question of what would happen if she became the rebellious vassal is is more open ended in her case than in Laporte's. Um, I, I'm assuming that over at SD Works they are banking on being able to divide the calendar enough uh, with with Royster getting this or that race and and, and Demi Volering getting this or that race. Uh, the, obviously, the, the really tricky thing though is that they have like four or five riders who deserve to be a leader at this or that race, and how do you divvy up the opportunities accordingly? But they've done a darn good job of that for a long time. Not that everybody has always been happy. There have been moments where there has been intra-team rivalry at this squad multiple times, uh, but it, it has worked for, you know, whatever happens, they still win. The team wins races. I would, I would uh, say the and, vibe and check is very positive uh, with the with the, the volering Reusser post, post-finish hugs and conversation. So Yeah. Oh, there's like a really cute photo of Demi just giving Royster like a massive kiss on the cheek. It's very <laughs> adorable. Uh, I'm I'm sure Danny Stam over at SD Works is glad to see that. I think also like Demi's happy to give that win over to Royster, not just because Marlon's clearly riding super well and a huge win like this does a lot for a rider's confidence. Also, because Demi is going into Vuelta a Burgos this week, um, she's just like totally packed her calendar uh, while she's on form, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. We'll see at the Tour de France Femme of Egg Swift. Um, but yeah, she's she's racing Burgos and Marlon's not racing Burgos, at, at least not that we know of. She is, I think, only racing Tour de Suisse coming up. But she's not on the start list for Burgos. So going into Burgos, the GC is very much in Volering's hands. It'll be, given the last stage, which has a massive hilltop climb, it's going to be really hard for anybody to outclimb Demi at this point. Like, we saw her flying at the Vuelta Femenina. The only person who can really challenge her on a climb like that is Guy Riolini, who I don't believe is going to be at the race, especially because the first three stages are relatively flat. There's, like, a couple little poppy climbs on the first day and then the second and third stages are pretty flat and then the final day is just this massive hilltop basically so uh, it, it's a race where looking at it right now like Demi's got this one pretty much wrapped up um, based on you know if Van Vluten races or not and even if she does we saw that if it comes down to the climb like you can't beat Demi right now yeah I, I'm I, it's so cool that we get such a busy stretch of racing world tour stage racing with big climbs in spain that this past month just over and over again we get to see these these big battles uh and and that's that's awesome so looking forward to borgos and i'm sure the peloton is looking forward to another opportunity to uh, take on demi volering which seems like it's something that uh, basically nobody can do right now unless they're her teammate and she says sure go for it <laughs> Uh, let's jump over to the Giro d'Italia, where, as we said before, the the storylines changed just a little bit uh, in between, oh, noon today, mountain time, and now. Uh, Remco Evenepoel had a really, uh, really interesting afternoon. He won a race, won himself a time trial by one second. It was very thrilling uh, to see the, the time trial hot seat change hands from... Let's see, I think it was Stefan Kung to Theo Gegenhardt, Gegenhardt to Garrett Thomas, and uh, 
Garen Thomas to Evanapool by two seconds, one second, and one second. And then we all discovered that Remco Evanapool is out of this race with COVID. Uh, so after a great, exciting moment for him earlier in the day, he now has to head home, which is a huge bummer. I, I think the the race was really shaping up to be very exciting, and I, I wrote something to that effect. Really? <laughs> Because it hasn't been, it's been really kind of lackluster so far, don't you think? What? I disagree, uh, but hold on. Let me, let, let's get to that. Uh, let's get to uh. that. Can can we mention that, um, I, I'm sure you were going to get to this, but the that Remco's out with COVID, like scrolling through Twitter, I, I was really disappointed to see the amount of people who were just really upset with that he, he tested even because the riders obviously don't have to test anymore. They, they, the teams test if a rider is feeling sick and wants to be tested, but there's no requirement for testing anymore at the races. And then it's still up to the team if they want to pull that rider or not, or up to the rider. And so it means that he felt bad enough that he wants, he doesn't want to like push it and race. And we saw a lot of riders have, heart issues and lung issues after having COVID. So it's still something that like is well, the, the worldwide, uh, what's it called? Global health emergency, something like that. Yeah. The global health emergency is passed. It's still a virus that can do real damage to athletes. So it's like, if he, if he doesn't want to race, if the team doesn't want him to race, then that's not something that us uh, sitting home at the couch should have any kind of negative say on like the rider's health should always come first. And while it might impact whether or not the Giro is exciting, which is a whole other conversation, I just got annoyed with like looking at people on Twitter being like, Oh, this is so stupid. It's up to the team. If they want to pull him. Must've been tough. The fact that he was able to win a TT at that grand tour with COVID is uh, a testament to how darn good he is. Uh, but now he's out of the race. And so, yeah, I, I actually was thinking that this was going to be even... Okay, before before we had this news coming down about Remco being out of the race, I was really looking forward to the next two weeks because I thought that the current GC situation, which up until just now was four riders basically within a minute of each other, was going to make for good racing when the mountains appeared. Because the, you know, Jiro organizers, for better or worse, kind of really decided to back... Uh, backload the climbs this year. They didn't put that much in the in the first nine stages for the climbers, uh, but that meant that when we finally did get to the climbing stages, we could have some action. Hopefully, uh, Cosmo, I know you thought it has been boring so far, but well, I think that's it's... mostly due to the fact that it just there weren't enough climbs yet, and there are definitely climbs coming up. We, you know, we've had a lot of stages kind of turn out sort of weird, right? We had they they they. they there was a very concerted effort to give the jersey away on stage four that almost didn't work. I think the margin they they got giving uh, the margin the margin between Remco and the front of the race after that stage was smaller than he wanted. Uh, after that, we had a sprint stage that was that turned into like basically a a run on Tegaderm and Gauze and Aspirin because half the peloton crashed because af- after a split in the peloton at like 6K to go with a group of 20 riders, nobody in those 20 riders wanted to do any work to try and gain some GC time. Why? I don't know, but they didn't. And then we saw the stage after that, uh, I think it was, where we had what looked like it was going to be a really exciting Breakaway escapes the peloton stage that fell apart at the last second and became just a, a great sprint from Pedersen. Don't get me wrong, but still, like, 
not what I was. I, it seemed to me like there was a lot of disappointment around that finish. I was less disappointed than others, but still, like it, it just everything seemed to be going off script. We had the first uphill finish, and it turned into that day a transitional stage, basically where the breakaway finishes and the peloton just sort of rolls in. Nobody tries to gain any time again, despite the fact it is a, the first mountaintop finish of the race. Uh, I thought stage eight was really cool, mostly because I like that. It felt very Giro. You had this hillside village, narrow roads, this kind of finishing circuit on a, you know, it's too steep to be the Tour de France. Like the, the it, it felt very Giro. It, it delivered. We got GC action. We got stage action. But on the whole, I feel like up really through the time trial, everyone has done whatever they possibly could to not race the Giro so far outside of the breakaway. The GC, the GC scene has been very calm. In just like in defense of the race, because I feel like it has been a really exciting first week. And I think that it's had some interesting moments, even if a couple of the stages didn't maybe live up to expectation, specifically stage seven, the first hilltop climb that didn't give us anything in terms of the general classification, but did give us a very exciting breakaway win. Um, the that climb wasn't like particularly challenging enough i think to like really crack any riders or do any damage and i think like a lot of the riders who are looking at the gc wouldn't have wanted to put in any massive attacks on that stage before the time trial on sunday and i also think the fact that the race is so backloaded means that this first week was always going to be a little bit less of a gc fight because by the time they get to the final week where there's a lot of really challenging climbing it's going to be really really like you've already got a lot of kilometers in the legs you're already like just so tired and then you still have to race up mountains so even with the climb on stage 7 it was never going to be a gc fight that stage with what's coming up I do agree, Cosmo, that there hasn't been as much GC action on some of the potential opportunities as I would have hoped. That said, I think a, Stage 8 was a pretty great uh, little appetizer, uh, antipasto, aperitivo, uh, for what's coming. And the the fact that they riders, well, Roglic really, was willing to do that on a climb that really wasn't that challenging suggests to me that he is interested in making this a, a exciting race. That's all even before all of a sudden it's it's three riders within seconds of each other because Remco Evenepoel is out of the race. And now we're going to have this situation where tiny gaps can be the difference between winning or losing the Giro d'Italia. Because after, with Remco out of the race, Garen Thomas is your new uh, pink jersey Heading into the first rest day, Primoz Roglic is two seconds behind Garen Thomas, and Theo Gegenhardt is five seconds behind Garen Thomas. Uh, and Joao Almeida is only 22 seconds behind, as is Andreas Lechnesund, who did a damn good job of uh, holding on to pink as long as he could. So there's a lot to look forward to with such a close GC so far, and I think we are finally getting to those tougher climbing stages. Uh, that that we're going to actually have some action. I hope. Yeah, I mean that's that's the hope, right? But it's again like this whole first week. You're like, yeah, everybody's still close together after the first week, and it's because nothing. They didn't they didn't do a whole lot. So, I mean, if you're going to have a grand tour, I get it's it's backloaded, but you know why? Why not just have these final two weeks? What was the? the, the, the I agree. I, I I appreciate the antipasto here, but still, you know, it it, it seems like. 
I don't know. I feel like it's at some point, you know, in, in the following two weeks, someone who was feeling good on a day where it was not an obvious opportunity to take time, but maybe they take that shot like Rolex did yesterday, um, and they did they they let that opportunity pass. They will be, I think, regretting that at some future point in the race. I agree. I do think this is largely on the organizers for making the race this way. I I agree. I, I wish that there were more uh, action in the first week, but but what's worse? Like what's worse, the women's Giro from twenty. I believe it's it was 2020 when the I think it was the first stage was a mountaintop finish and the GC was literally done like it was just done and the rest of the week was just like incredibly boring because like nobody could take the pink jersey from Anna Vandebregen like that's way worse to me than having the race backloaded in the GC. Yeah, I think the potential happy medium is having more of the sort of punchy climbs, the smaller things that you can maybe get away on and just have more action. Um, but we do have some of that coming up, and, and obviously there are really hard climbs coming up as well. Uh, climbs where, to, to move the conversation to maybe the next talking point we have here, uh, climbs where the Ineos Grenadiers, I think, are really well suited to potentially uh, make for some exciting racing with two-pronged approach. And we, on various podcasts that we have done, the three of us, over the last several years, whatever those podcasts were, I feel like we very often return to talking about how effective multi-pronged GC approaches can be. And they're sort of the go-to uh, example of when they don't work, and that's the Movistar team for like a three-year stretch there. And the Ineos team, formerly the Sky team, is really the shining example of how it can work. And the, for the past few years, they have continuously shown that their second option can be a great option for a Grand Tour. We saw Garen Thomas win a Tour de France this way. We saw Egan Bernal going into the Tour de France with Garen Thomas as the other main option. Uh, Teo Gegenhardt, for instance, was not necessarily the rider we were all looking at going into the Giro d'Italia that he won. And here they are with not only just those two riders, not only just Garen Thomas and Teo Gegenhardt, who, by the way, looked fantastic in the TT today. Uh, Gegenhardt really impressed me in the stage nine TT. They've also got Pavel Sivakov and they've got a darn good team around those riders who can potentially apply some serious pressure to Prima's Roglic and, and maybe Joel Almeida. I don't want to count him out entirely, but I really do think it's about Ineos versus Prima's Roglic, which is kind of the discussion we had for like a year and a half, a little while ago, like before Tadej Pogacar arrived. It was, it was all about that Yumbo Visma versus Ineos. So now we're finally, we're getting back to that. Uh, Tade is, is obviously not at this race, so we don't have to worry about him. But we're getting back to that Ineos versus Yumbo conversation that we were having there for, yeah, a little while, 2020, 2021. I feel like this is such an interesting position for Ineos to be in because they would have been going into the stage on Tuesday as the aggressors um like they would have been basically three of them against remco who going into the next two weeks like remco on stage eight had no teammates he was completely isolated and it wasn't even a gc day in theory um so going if he had still been in the race going into the final two weeks he would have been in a really tough position to take on all of the Ineos Grenadiers riders who are in the top 10 of the GC which is three of them so it would have been like the one two three attack versus Remco which would have made for a really interesting race but now with Remco out of the race they're back into their same old same old where they've got a bunch of riders in the top 10 and really all they have to do is defend that and so it's a super interesting position 
going into the next week. I mean, I feel like it's like we've almost gone back in time. <laughs> That's what it feels bit. like. Yeah, for sure. I, I do think, though, that Ineos keeps showing, at least at the Grand Tours, when it comes to GC stuff, they have continually, over the last two years, even when they haven't been necessarily in that same dominant position, they keep riding like they are. Like, you keep seeing the, the sky train show up. Even when it's like, hey, don't do that. That's not helping you. That's helping the other guy. Uh, so I think maybe they'll be happy to be able to get back to that where it actually makes sense with two riders inside the top three. Uh, but I think they are very used to that. They've shown that they're good at that for a decade. Uh, to me, the real question is whether that sort of style is going to be able to, uh, well, do anything really against Primoz Roglic because I think... If Roglic ends up being in good form, you might just be wearing out your own riders for him to then attack them. This makes me really curious about what sort of form Thomas is on, because when he won his tour, a good portion of his gap over, I think it was Dumoulin, was was bonus seconds, because he was able to just put down you know, 200, 300 meters of power at the top of the climbs that no one else could match. And that is very much how Roglic tends to ride. It's how he's ridden through the, the stage races earlier this year. And if, if Ineos sets up like they've been setting up, like you said, running that, that, that kind of train to make a smaller group and they give Roglic the sprinting opportunities, he's going to get more seconds from them. So it may be they may have to do something kind of new with this two-pronged attack that they haven't been able to pull before. My hope is that they actually do a two-pronged attack. I mean, they, they actually use both of their weapons, or really all three of them, if you want to include Pavel Silvikov, and send people up the road. It's not something that they have tended to do uh, from a GC perspective before. They've certainly really uh, managed over the past few years to figure out how to still get breakaway wins when they're not involved in the GC. But when they're actually contending for the GC, I, I, I would like to see them do a little bit more from a exciting racing perspective and use both of those riders. And I think they both... Because they're both really strong climbers, they, they have what it takes to potentially put Roglic under pressure. Roglic does have a good team here. He's not Remco Evenepoel, who was completely isolated. I think Roglic has enough team firepower that it's going to, uh, it's going to mean that, that it will take more to, to put him under pressure. Uh, but hopefully, we'll, we'll get to see some of that. I am a little disappointed to see Remco out because I, I kind of wanted to see if... Uh... Sudal Quickstep could do more of what they did at Liège, uh, kind of moving into the end of this race. And I I guess they'll have to do something because uh, the, 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 the doing the teamwork for the GC leader is, is no longer in the cards. Um, but it was just interesting to see how they had, they had sort of the storyline from the spring was they're turning into a, a GC team. And then, as we pointed out, they just didn't, didn't show up that, that boldly uh, in, when they were leading the GC of the Giro. Yeah, it is a real shame. I mean, he he looked great. Uh, he looked re- well. He looked really good in the opening stage. He he looked good. He did win today. He did win the time trial, uh, but he didn't win by as much as many people thought. And I guess based on actual like, how did he look? He looked a little tired. And now we kind of know that he had COVID, so that makes sense. I meant more the like the the overall team. Yeah, the the team though. It, it would have been very there. I think there was a lot of potential for that battle to get interesting because they didn't really. Yeah, as you said, they didn't really show up as much as we would have expected. Conspiracy theory. Remco doesn't actually have COVID, and he's dropping out of the Giro two weeks early to prepare for the tour. That's amazing. I love it. 
I mean, obviously he does have COVID, and that, that's not real, but conspiracy. Um, Cosmo was our my tinfoil hat. Cosmo was our tinfoil hat guy last week, so it's nice <laughs> to really spread that the around. Tinfoil hat has been passed along. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I do wonder. I mean, I think that that a lot of people wondered as soon as they saw that news. Uh, you know, will Remco head to the tour? I guess we'll find out. Um, yeah, I yeah. want to say one more thing about Ineos just really quick. Um, the I'm curious, and who is their top guy? Because, like, had Teo not lost time on stage two, he would have been winning by, like, over 10 seconds going into stage 10. Well, Abby, so, as we did briefly discuss before the podcast, you know, had that happened, had that not happened, really, then the entire cosmos would be different, and we don't know what would have happened. Uh, you know, had that coin flip gone the other but way. But I have to point it out because I said that Teo was going to win the Giro and you were very skeptical of my choices. Um, uh, I don't know if I was very skeptical. You were I, pretty skeptical. I think I was I'm just skeptical. I'm feeling real good in my seat right now. Like I was just skeptical. I'm feeling good that I didn't, I, so, I was so close to picking Remco. I keep, I've picked the race favorite a lot this year and I didn't. And due to COVID, that's not a great way to to feel smart, but here we are. Uh, yeah. So we got a lot of racing to look forward to. Hopefully there will be action in the mountains for the GC battle. It's a shame that Remco is gone. He was looking strong. Yeah. He was looking like he was going to put up a a really great fight and he did have a, a decent lead. We'll talk about what's coming up from a stage perspective in a bit, but first let's talk a little bit about some of the stages that we've seen for the non GC riders. Uh, I'm, I'm specifically thinking first that, Mess Peterson is now a stage winner at all three Grand Tours. He did so. He did. He accomplished that feat in a span of a year, which is extremely impressive. And uh, to give Abby some credit, uh, when he won the world title, I remember being very surprised that he was the winner out of that group in a sprint. I didn't know he was much of a sprinter because I didn't know much about him. And Abby said, duh. And <laughs> now he's one of the best sprinters in the world, and he's won a stage at all three Grand Tours. Abby saw it coming, so we You're obviously have a good You're constantly just, like, tonight. really surprised when I, when I, like, pick winners or, like, have interviews randomly with the winners of Perry roubaix the week before the race. You're always just so shocked. Well, part of that's because I think sometimes you pick riders who are obvious outsiders just to be, you know, fun. I do that. And so. and at Berg uh, at the Vuelta Feminina I picked the obvious favorite because I wanted to prove a point and she didn't win. So yeah. I so that goes feel to show that you, my, I guess. my fun picks are way more fun. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh yeah, so Mess Peterson very fast, by the way, in case you didn't know. Uh, I think it's very exciting for Trek to have a rider who can sprint like this. It feels to me like they kind of are in the unfortunate position of having a rider who would have really thrived given race courses at the classics like 10 years ago, five years ago. There, we, we are getting, we're seeing so many more attacks winning races, very small groups winning races. Sprinters apparently don't win Milan San Remo anymore. But I feel like if Mess Peterson had been in the pro peloton five or 10 years ago, he could win a lot of Milan's San Remo, Milan San Remos. Uh, and now it's just, he's going to have to work harder. But he does have the ability to get over some of those climbs. He's a heck of a of a rider and I think yeah just a really really impressive year for for Mess Peterson who has uh come into his own since uh his world championship his precocious world championship win he's really shown us yeah I'm I'm a pretty darn good rider um also over at Trek there is a guy named Tom Scoinch 
who has been in some breakaways. And it's been very impressive, I got to say. Uh, Abby, we know because we we're a little we're a little closer to Tom's than we are to other riders. Uh, he didn't have the best build up to the race. So it's uh, pretty pretty awesome that he's been doing so well. It's a bummer he crashed on on stage eight, but that was a pretty great day for him. Um, Like if you saw Ben Healy when he attacked, you could kind of see through like the scrum of people. And the only person to follow that was was Tom's. So, Well, hopefully it bodes well for the week and a half ahead, two weeks ahead, particularly with enough. I mean, climbing stages are always potential breakaway days uh, at, at Grand Tour. So there's, I think, some real opportunities there. For him, and also for the guy you also just mentioned there, Ben Healy, who, uh, nice confirmation ride from him to go on and win a stage so impressively after his great Ardennes campaign. Uh, I think, you know, EF has to be pretty thrilled to have such a, a promising youngster over there. So to look ahead at the 2023 Giro d'Italia, which suddenly has a wide open. I mean, I, I honestly kind of think it already had a wide open GC, even with Remco in the race, and now it's really wide open or at least between three riders. Uh, we've got some very hilly stages coming up and a few major you know, mountain climbs in, in the next few days. Uh, so stages 11 and 12, for instance, have enough hills to, well, at least make things potentially interesting. And then stage 13 takes the race into Switzerland, finishes, well, first of all, they go over a really, really, really uh, high-altitude ascent 2,472 meters, that's pretty high above sea level. Uh, and then they'll still go over after that another Cat 1, and they'll finish on a Cat 1. That's stage 13, so lots to look forward to. I think that's going to be a GC day. Uh, just that You can't go over that many hard climbs at that high of an altitude without having some serious uh, well, implosions of riders who aren't in good shape, and hopefully attacks from riders who are. Uh, more climbs to come just on from a, from a hilly perspective on stage 15, and then stage 16, another a potential GC day with uh, with a Cat 1 climb to close things out. Not the steepest climb in the world to Monte Bondone, but enough that we'll hopefully see some action there. So the third week has most of the really, really, really big climbs, but the second week does have the potential for action. Uh, we, do, we also have the potential for weather to have a serious impact on this race. We've seen some photos on social media of what the climbs in the dolomites look like right now and uh they are covered in snow and it's if they if that keeps happening where if it, if it continues to snow they they may have to change things around with the route uh it's it's too much to ride through uh so we'll see we'll have to keep our eyes on that but just in general the high mountain climbs uh are going to be potentially impacted by weather and that's really not that surprising this is the Giro. that's how it goes yeah sometimes they cancel sometimes they should cancel and they don't um, so we'll see. <laughs> Sometimes they sort of neutralize the race, but don't. And then Nairo Quintana gets a big gap and then yep. other people aren't happy. That happened one time. Yeah. So definitely keep your eye on the forecast in uh, Italy and also Switzerland because they're going to spend some time there and keep your eye on this race where there will be hopefully some interesting general classification battles to come away from the road. By the way, there was also a big mountain bike race this past weekend, and maybe you went over to Escape Collective, and you may have seen our coverage, but if you didn't, well, I'm here to tell you that 
Escape Collective kicked off our mountain bike coverage at the first World Cup of the year in Nove Mesto this past weekend. And we plan to cover the rest of the World Cup calendar this year as well. Uh, that's been a dream since we conceived of the whole project. We reached it far sooner than we thought we would. Uh, and that coverage is only possible because of members. So more members means more revenue, which means more reporters and photographers, which means more and better editorial access across a broader array of beats, journalistic beats. Uh, we promised on launch that we would increase coverage areas as membership increased. And this, the mountain bike push, is the first major step in that direction. So become a member. Become a member on one of our new monthly plans. That's coming, monthly plans. Or you can save 30% with an annual plan and help fast track the expansion to covering more stuff and better. You can head over to escapecollective.cc slash join to support Escape Collective today. And that supports everything we do, including this podcast as well. So we'd love to have you as a member if you're not already. And if you are, well, thanks. All right, that's it for the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast this week. As usual, there's lots to look forward to in the podcast department over the next few days. There will be a wheel talk. Abby, will, will there be a wheel talk? I guess I should check before I promise that, but I'm just assuming there's going to be a wheel talk. Oh, yeah. There's going to be a wheel talk, and we have special guests, Caroline Canuel, the Canadian legend, Olympian, just all-around incredible person joining Lauren and I to talk about more of it, Zulia, if you didn't get your fill today. So you got that to look forward to. You've got Geek Warning to look forward to. And, of course, the placeholders will be back. And then we, we, the Pretty Serious crew, will be back again on what will I get? Well, yeah, be the second rest day ahead of the final big week of racing at the Giro. So stay tuned for all of that. And, obviously, go watch the rest of the Giro stages over the next week so that you know what we're talking about when we talk to you again. In the meantime, have a great week. Great talking to you, Cosmo. Great talking to you, Abby. Bye. Bye. Arrivederci. Bye.